Welcome to The Dirt, where we discuss all things related to the environment and environmental justice, often with a focus on North Carolina. Uh, We have a packed show today. We are talking about some new threats to endangered species uh, coming from Washington, D.C. and uh, here in North Carolina. Uh, There was a wave of folks who traveled in from the coast yesterday to Raleigh to fight the Trump administration's plans to open up North Carolina's coast to offshore drilling, uh, North Carolina and and everywhere else except for the coast around Mar-a-Lago, basically. Uh, And we were blessed to have a great interview with environmental justice and civil rights icon Dolly Burwell, who sat down to talk to us about uh, the 1978 PCB dumping that took place uh, in Warren County and other counties in, in rural North Carolina and about the subsequent fight against uh, that landfill in her community that sparked a national environmental justice movement. Uh, so it's going to be great. Stick around. Reminder that you can listen to us live in Raleigh on WSHA 88.9 FM. If you're in Rocky Mount, tune into 102.1 and in Fayetteville on 102.3 FM. As always, you can stream the show online at WSHAFM.org. And The Dirt is also uh, available as a podcast after the broadcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. So search for The Dirt there and search for The Dirt on Twitter. It is The Dirt FM on there. So uh, let's get started. We're going to start off today with a story about a boy and his dog. Uh, specifically the Noose River Water Dog, an imperiled aquatic salamander in the Noose River Basin. And the boy is the Upper Noose River Keeper, Matthew Starr. So have a listen. Unseasonably warm day in February, a perfect day to explore the wilder areas in central North Carolina. So we joined the Upper Noose River Keeper, Matthew Starr, and his team from Sound Rivers, who were on a search for two rare and imperiled animal species. Yeah, so you'll see them hiding in these little ledges. Um, not so much under things since they're a fish, but they'll hide in little, like where these root mass, root root balls hang out over, they'll hide back in there. And you know, we got some ripples going on up here. We were wading, hiking, searching the winding creeks and sandy tributaries of the mighty Noose River, which spans 275 miles from northwest of Raleigh, North Carolina, all the way down to Newburn, North Carolina, where it empties into the Pamlico Sound. The Noose is the longest river contained entirely within the state of North Carolina and its basin, along with the Tar Pamlico River Basin running parallel just to the north, is home to a unique assortment of plants and animals, many of which are found nowhere else on Earth. We were looking for two such creatures, the Carolina Mad Tom and the Noose River Water Dog, which some folks refer to as the Carolina Mud Puppy. The Carolina Mad Tom is a very cute-looking miniature catfish, and the River Dog is just an amazing, very cool aquatic salamander has these external gills coming out the sides of its head that are bright red and they're just really cool species so we're out here today checking on this habitat these species are threatened and hopefully will be given the protection of being listed as endangered so that these species can begin to make a comeback The Carolina Mad Tom and Noose River Water Dog are so-called candidate species, 
which means there's enough information for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to propose that it be listed as endangered or threatened under the Endangered Species Act. So far, the Fish and Wildlife Service has declined to act, which means the two animals have no statutory protections. In addition to the common and ongoing threats posed by the destruction of stream habitats during housing development and by pollutants in the water from nearby hog farms or coal ash storage sites, the Mad Tom and News Water Dog are now facing two large new threats, the 540 Highway Project and the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. As time to save these species slips away, Biodiversity advocates are putting pressure on federal officials. In January, the Center for Biological Diversity issued a 60-day notice to the Fish and Wildlife Service that the center and its allies intend to file suit against the agency, arguing that after years of failing to develop a plan to protect the species, it has abrogated its duty to ensure that the protection of endangered species occurs in a timely manner to avoid further decline and increase risk of extinction. Sadly, Other imperiled species in North Carolina and across the nation are facing similar hazards. The Endangered Species Act and many of its programs are facing an existential threat from the Trump administration and Republicans in Congress who have been seeking ways to undermine the ESA for years. I caught up with Sharice Johnson, a research associate in the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists in Washington, D.C. She outlined some of the attacks on the ESA coming in three prongs. First, bills designed to torpedo specific protection programs. Listen. Basically, there there are a few routes of attack that they're taking. Um, We've got legislation, um, so we've got the bills that are being passed. Uh, Right now, there's a package of about five bills that have passed and the House Natural Resources Committee and the House of Representatives. Um, The Union of Concerned Scientists is opposed to all of these bills, but we're focused on three specifically that um, kind of uh, attack the underlying scientific process within the Endangered Species Act. So one would be uh, the Gray Gray Wolf State Management Act, which um, would block uh, federal... Endangered Species Act protections for the gray wolves in Great Lakes states and Wyoming, and as such, ignores the scientific basis of uh, listing decisions, um, politicizing what should be a process based on science, which is what all of these are doing. Then there's um, another one, the State Tribal and Local Species Transparency and Recovery Act, which prioritizes information that's coming from states and tribal and local governments and agencies uh, and categorizes that as best available science, completely ignoring the fact that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and and, um, uh, NOAA, uh, National Marine Fisheries Service, uh, ignoring the fact that they already consult with states and tribal and local governments for implementing the Endangered Species Act. Um, so in, in a sense, they're basically defining best available science as something that's determined by area and not basing it on scientific rigor. Next, Johnson discussed poison pills. Riders quietly slipped into broader legislation that would disrupt ESA protections. And then another route is uh, the appropriations route, so funding, right? So um, that's where we get into the poison pill 
um, anti-science riders, which um, which are attached to uh, um, the budget uh, appropriations here that would uh, include um, riders that delist or delay protections for these imperiled species, again, politicizing the science-based decisions. Um, one uh, would be, oh gosh, the sage-grouse. So the sage-grouse, this one is um, is always an issue. This one is very politically contentious because of the habitat it's in, is in, I guess, prime oil and gas area in development and and so right now there's a, a rider from the most recent appropriation bill that would prohibit the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service from even considering the sage grouse to be a candidate for listing under the Endangered Species Act. And uh, I mentioned that there's a, a bill for the gray wolf. There's also a rider for the gray wolf that would prohibit the gray wolves from receiving any funding for protections and one that would be kind of um, relevant to North Carolina would be the red wolf, um, since it's uh, got native habitats in North Carolina. The, the, there's a rider that would effectively end the recovery program for the red wolf and ultimately would declare it extinct. That population is just too small for uh, recovery if we end protections for them in their recovery program. Finally, Johnson hit on a final mode of attack, purse strings. It's one that should be familiar to North Carolinians who saw the Department of Environmental Quality and other regulatory agencies gutted in 2011 when Republicans gained a majority in the North Carolina General Assembly. The agencies that are supposed to um, implement the Endangered Species Act are, you know, like the, the Fish and Wildlife Service, are just underfunded yeah so they just their budget um has been cut the proposed uh the proposed budget uh compared to the fy17 omnibus package uh for fish and wildlife service was cut by nine percent and the ecological services which is the um the uh, office that is responsible for the endangered species you know for listings and and all of that their their budget was cut by 11%. And and this is they are already underfunded. In the meantime, the Mad Tom and the Water Dog are somewhere right now swimming the quiet streams and bends of the Noose River, trying, like so many of us, to make it through until tomorrow. And thank you to NC Conservation Network's Michael Lento for helping to package that segment. We are joined in the studio by uh, Upper Noose River Keeper Matthew Starr. Welcome back, Matthew. Thanks for having me. So uh, thank you for taking us out uh, on that journey. One of the places that um, uh, potentially contain populations of the water dog in the Mad Time is Swift Creek, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I believe, a tributary of the Noose River. Correct. And there is another threatened species uh, in Swift Creek uh, and, and some other uh, river systems along the Atlantic Slope that, that we didn't talk about in that segment, but is definitely worth mentioning, and that is the dwarf wedge mussel. Yeah, so let's, let's look at Swift Creek kind of broadly first. Um, Swift Creek is home to 13 rare 
or endangered aquatic species. Um, Swift Creek is a is a sub basin of the of the Noose River. Um, Swift Creek has also been designated as one of the key areas throughout the state of North Carolina for the continued survival of threatened or endangered species. So this is a very important body of water. And the species you mentioned is the dwarf wedge mussel. Um, mussels are, are like the canary in the coal mine. They, since they're filters, you know, they filter the water um, through their bodies. They, they are very important for understanding the pollution and, and how healthy the river system is. So particularly sensitive, I guess. Correct, yeah. correct. Um, so just, just like if you um, were in a body of water and the, and the way that, that you fed and, and survived was to filter something through your body, you would be highly susceptible to any pollution that is in that body of water. And protecting species is important. You know, dwarf wedge mussel has a, a host fish. Um, so it's not just the mussel itself, it's the habitat, it's the other aquatic um, something animals. Eats, something eats the fish, right? Correct. Like, I mean, it's all so connected. it's, yeah. It's like a conspiracy. <laughs> sure. So there, there are uh, there are a couple of specific threats uh, to the wedge mussel to Swift Creek. One of them is the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've we've discussed that on the show uh, quite a bit. It's it is as it is probably a sure thing uh, at this point uh, in terms of its construction. Um, the the permits that are holding it up are falling like dominoes one after the other and. And its proposed path goes right over the Noose River, isn't mm-hmm. it? Correct. And, you know, nothing's a sure thing. We, we, I, as the upper Noose River keeper and Sound Rivers, who I work for, will do everything in our power. You're, yes, you're right. Yeah. Absolutely. Bureaucratically, right now... It's very tough. But there's a lot that people still can do, uh, and it isn't built. It isn't built. They've cut some trees, but it's not built until it is. It isn't. So, good point. Uh, the other thing, though, is something that we have not talked about specifically on the show, and that is the, the Highway 540 project. We've talked about other highway projects um, in Durham, the Eastern community there, and how they ha- can have a, a disruptive and disparate environmental justice impact. Uh, and the, the 540 highway project has a little bit of that, and it also has a very detrimental effect on some of the species that we've talked about. Um, Lisa Sorg from North Carolina Policy Watch, who joined us last month on the show, She's uh, now currently a, a, an award-winning journalist as of this past weekend. Uh, she talked a little. She wrote a little bit about this. Um, tell me about the impact on the environment that the 540 project would have. Yeah, so 540, as presented by the Department of Transportation, would be catastrophic um, to the Swift Creek watershed and to uh, surface waters around that area. Building the project, um, putting cars on the road the sprawl that this that this project will cause would be so you have your direct impacts from the from building the road itself as well as the indirect impacts uh, from once the road is is complete and the road is just not necessary it's is is a is a going to be a huge cost um it'll be a toll road so not only will taxpayers it's a double whammy there um 
And it's going to displace, I mean, it's going to displace, well, as Lisa wrote, like 209 households. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a mobile home community. Um, a lot of these are low-income communities that are they're going to be displaced. Uh, and, but it's going to have a devastating effect on, on wetlands, too. Oh, yeah. So just the sheer number of stream crossings, the 1,000-plus feet of stream impact that this will have, um, the tens of acres of, of wetlands that will no longer be viable wetlands this this road this potential road again nearly 70 nearly 70 acres of wetlands that's a lot yes Uh, that is a tremendous impact and when we're talking about the interconnective uh parts of the ecosystem here wetlands play a huge role yes um also a kind of filter a natural filter in the in the different way than the muscle but you know these kinds of they're very sensitive places natural filters that we need um so yeah, everybody should go to NC Policy Watch and check out uh, Lisa Sorgs. She wrote a, a huge piece on on this project and its impact on the muscle, uh, on the Blue Skies Mobile Home Park uh, near Apex. It's a fantastic piece, and, and it gives you a very good idea of what these kinds of projects, uh, the impact that they can have. And, 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 and It's very important to note we're not just saying no to this project. There is an alternative um, which which can serve these communities. It's not about stopping progress. It's about doing it the right in responsible way. Correct. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to head to a break. Stay tuned for our next segment. We are joined by Dolly Burwell, who I mentioned earlier. It's going to be fantastic. Thank you. Welcome back to The Dirt. As many of you know, the environmental justice movement is largely regarded to have begun here in North Carolina. Uh, Forty years ago this year, in 1978, Two men working for the Ward Transformer Company drove trucks uh, across 14 rural counties in North Carolina. They were full of a carcinogenic chemical called PCB, and they dumped 60,000 tons of this chemical deliberately uh, along their route in the middle of the night, a midnight dumping. Uh, the polluters were eventually jailed, and the, and the chemicals stayed in the soil along the route for quite some time until Governor James Hunt uh, in the state of North Carolina chose Warren County as the site of a landfill that would contain the PCBs when they were cleaned up. Uh, the Warren County site was uh, scientifically flawed in all of the sites, and of all of the sites that were considered, it had the largest percentage of black residents. Uh, it was rural and largely low income, and at the time, the residents there were politically disenfranchised, so it, there was a lot of effort um, and hard work put into trying to stop this. The community came together to fight the construction of the landfill, and the entire fight sparked a national movement. Dolly Burwell was a key organizer of these protests and actions, and she was a key leader over the decades that followed. She spoke with us about her experiences as a mother, a community organizer, about the role of faith in the movement, and about the state of the environmental justice movement today. Have a listen. So I want to just jump right in. Um, you, it was 40 years ago this year that the dumping occurred in Warren County and all the other 13 counties. Uh, during the course of the, the protests that you helped organize afterwards, you were arrested, I think, five times. Is that right? Five times. Five yeah. times. And there were hundreds of other people who were arrested as well. And many of those people were arrested many, many times uh, for blocking the the trucks and, and other things, if I recall correctly. Uh, you said recently that uh, without going to jail, uh, you would not have created a movement. 
And I think being willing to break the law, to be cuffed, to be jailed, um, that requires uh, a degree of bravery I'm not sure most people uh, understand or appreciate. I'd like you, if you can, to tell me a little bit more about the role uh, that civil disobedience and and sacrifice plays in creating change. And and specifically, can, can meaningful change be made if people aren't willing to make those kinds of sacrifices? Yes, I I um I really think that, you know being a child of the uh civil rights movement um you know I was grew, that that grew out of uh what I knew had to happen in Warren County that people had to make sacrifices that people had to be arrested in order to um to gain any kind of success for fighting that uh, PCB dump, I mean, I think that I knew in the beginning that uh, it would not really stop um, the the landfill itself, um, but I had a bigger picture in mind, and that picture was at the time that we were bl- trying to block the trucks from coming in and creating the Warren County PCB landfill. There was a move in the state to um, to uh, create a, a a larger landfill, a uh, toxic waste dump. Um, I saw Warren County uh, becoming another email Alabama. And so I, I knew that we had to make sacrifices and being a child of the civil rights movement, being arrested, going to jail was was my way of of saying that this gotta become a movement and just as the civil rights um uh movement and I in fact the Washington Post really dubbed it uh as the the largest civil rights movement since the nineteen sixties. So I think that people got to be willing to, to make sacrifice. Um, and, and I would say that those of us who were comfortable going to jail, those were, that, that definitely was sacrifices. But I don't want to give people the impression that if you are not comfortable being arrested, that that you can't, in, in, in social movements for change, you don't have to always go to jail. You know, you can march, you can attend meetings, whatever your comfort level allows you to do to be a part of that movement and making those sacrifices. I think that's what you need to do. And you, one of the, the times that you were arrested, I believe, your daughter was present. She was, I think, 10 years old at the time. And, and you saw her getting arrested. Is that right? Yes, I was, I was, it was actually the the very first day of the, uh, that, that the trucks was going to start putting, um, bringing the soil to Warren County. Uh, we had sort of, um, made plans to, um, those of us who was going to get arrested, we was going to do a march from the um, Cola Spring Baptist Church to the landfill. And, and of course, as in most movements, you have to plan uh, who's going to get arrested and how that is going to um, turn out. And so I had really gotten her ready to go to school. Um, and I thought she was, in, as every other morning, 
at a certain time would go to the bus and I would go to the door and make sure she got on the bus. So when I went to, uh, after I had got dressed and went to make sure she was leaving out of the house to go to the bus, she was still sitting on the, on the sofa. So I said to her, um, you know, come on, you know, you know, don't miss your bus. Let's get on the bus. And she said, I'm not going to school today. I'm going with you to the march. And, you know, as a mother, I knew that those trucks would be bringing toxic waste. And I knew that we were going to block the trucks. And I didn't know if there was going to be an accident because, or, or you know, truck could have turned over. I didn't really want her, um, you know, to my mother my motherly instincts kicked in and I said, well, Kim, you, you shouldn't do this. And she said, no, I don't want you to do this. You you have to go to school. And she basically said, well, mom, if you're going to do it, why can't I do it? And so when I thought about it, you know, I didn't want to tell her even at age 10 that she shouldn't stand up for what she believed in. So I, um, capitulated and we talked about it and she said well if i get arrested i know i'm as a juvenile if i get separated from you i can call my aunt i can call my daddy and we had a plan we developed a plan but even with that plan when i got arrested and when i was on the paddle wagon and i looked out the one and i saw all the reporters around her and i saw her crying I really didn't know what what was happening with her. I thought she had just gotten scared. And later on, in, in fact, I didn't get out of jail that day until really, really late in the afternoon. Um, but the plan worked because she called her daddy. He came and picked her up. And uh, when I got out of out of uh, jail that night, I was turn the TV on and I saw her on the national news and she was saying she was not afraid of going to jail, but she was afraid of what the toxic waste may do to her family and friends. And she was afraid that they were going to get cancer because they asked her if she was afraid because she was crying. And um, so that sparked a lot of uh, students from UNC and Chapel Hill and Durham and other places to to join the movement uh, and come and protest with us. That's incredible. Uh, you mentioned that you were marching uh, from Coley Springs and, and with the congregation there. Uh, I understand that uh, the faith community, uh, specifically that congregation, the United Church of Christ as well, they played a, a very primary role in bringing affected people together um, and helping to organize some of this resistance. And, and I know that you've, you've written before that you felt it was important to bring the faith community into the organizing process in part in order to move some people away from responding to these events with violence. Uh, yes. Yes. Tell me about, yes. tell me about the, the that, threats. That, yeah. That, yeah. That for me was, was very important. Again, um, uh, 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 being a, a child of the civil rights movement uh, and having a brother who had uh, maybe six or eight years before the toxic waste was dumped, had relocated to Warren County, bought property, 
and began um, a cattle farm in Warren County. And all he could see was, you know, his his livelihood being interrupted. And he basically said to me, the first the first truck that I see coming in here, I am going to take care of it. And I knew he meant in a violent way. And so I had to do my best to talk to him and convince him that we could make progress through nonviolent civil disobedience and that that was the way um, the civil rights movement gained um, progress and that he had to trust the faith community and trust us to um, build a movement that would not cause him to lose his livelihood. And so it was very important for me, and I knew that in order to keep it from being nonviolent, um, and out of the 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 500 uh, plus arrests that was made, they were all made uh, from nonviolent civil disobedience. None of the arrests was made. None of those 500 plus arrests was made from someone being violent. Now. And the other reason why I knew that it would, if we didn't bring the faith community in, that it would become violent because um, a few weeks, or maybe three weeks, while they were constructing the landfill and they had put in this liner, the landfill was vandalized. And, you know, someone had went in and just cut up the liner and... And so I knew the state was uh, determined to build a landfill. I don't even think they um, they replaced the whole line. I think they patched it up. And I think the the um, even though we knew that landfill was going to leak, I think the reason it leaked when it did, uh, as soon as it did, was because the liner was. Um, not sufficient in the first place, but because it had been previously vandalized. So I knew that if we didn't bring the faith community in and people could come and march and get out their frustrations and 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 trust um, the faith community to lead that, that it would it would would have definitely become violent. Do you think that? The, I mean, I'm looking around the landscape today, and there are so many uh, environmental justice issues, environmental issues, social justice issues uh, that people are fighting for. The Atlantic Coast Pipeline comes immediately to mind. Uh, do, you, do you think that today environmental activists and communities of faith are, are working together as powerfully and impactfully as they did 40 years ago? Um, and, and if not, how, how can we do it better? Well, I, I think they are. I, I really do think they are. Um, I, I, I think in terms of national attention, I think because our country, the way it is now, and with the leadership from in, in many of our state houses as well as nationally, it's so much, you know, it's so much wrong, <laughs> you know, and it's so many, you have to fight for so many different things. Um, I think that that 
the national attention is not on these local communities that are fighting in within their own community with faith-based groups. But I, I do think that um, I know. I mean, I do think that that communities that are working on social issues uh, are working hand in hand with the faith community. I, I just think because of of um, our country and the atmosphere in which we find ourselves in today that the, the the national media have so much more to focus on. Thank you. I'll I'll ask one last thing. Um, where do you where do you think the environmental justice justice movement uh, is today? Um, after these many decades or is it headed in the right direction? Is it in a healthy place? Is it where where are we at? Well, I wouldn't say I think it's the environmental justice movement is at one of those ebbs. Uh, I think from from a national perspective, but I do think that um, uh, last a week before last, I think I attended um, a a a conference um, at at Duke. And I saw how um, people uh, across, the, it was a national conference, and I saw folks from Alabama that was talking about sanitation and water and, and, and people from New Jersey, you know. And then I, I, I went to a roundtable on um, community networking, and I saw the young people that was was in in policy um, uh, environmental policy classes, and so you you and I and, and where I was, it was very inspiring for me. So I think while you while you don't hear about environmental justice uh, again, um, like Warren County in 1982, I think that you got communities still working to make change. And, 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 and I think that with a lot of the environmental policies being rolled back, it could really do uh, cause people to be not so hopeful. Uh, so I think those of us who, who have the opportunity to encourage and to go to communities and speak and, and those of us who, who uh, at times were not so hopeful uh, in Warren County, it, it's part of our, our role to try to keep people hope, hopeful and keep the, you know, keep, keep the pressure on it and, and, and show people how it got to be the political and voting is all intertwined and even the rollback of environmental policy and environmental justice policies, we got to connect that to what's happening at, at the ballot box and, and make changes. 
thank you again to uh, Ms. Burwell for uh, speaking with us. We, we actually got to speak with her on a, a range of other issues as well. We talked about uh, political disempowerment um, in Warren County. The people were not represented in government, and there was an effort led by Dolly and others to uh, to get people registered to vote and, and to build up that power base. Uh, and eventually that led to some challenge, uh, to some changes, uh, positive changes over the decades that followed. And she spoke with us a little bit about the state of uh, racial and, and partisan gerrymandering today and some of the parallels and challenges that communities across the state and the country are, are facing now. One of the other legacies that came out of uh, this fight in, uh, in the early 1980s and the late 70s uh, was the, the recognition of disparate impact in an environmental context and the uh, general accounting office and the united church of christ commission for racial justice each began looking at the ways in which uh, our industrial sites or our uh, waste facilities are where they're located what communities they're adjacent to and impacting and um and that had never been done before one of the first studies released in uh in 1983 after this documented that three of the four commercial toxic waste disposal facilities in the southeastern united states were in black communities three of the four all of which were poor and so you know that continued to to fuel a new environmental consciousness um about the way um, not just that pollution's bad for the natural world, but that it's bad for people and that we're harming specific people in the ways that we are um, producing and, and disposing of our pollution. So thank you again. We'll share some of that conversation at another point. Um, but I really appreciate Ms. Burwell uh, speaking to us today. We are going to go into a final segment after the break. Uh, we'll be talking about a, a wave of folks who came up from the coast yesterday to voice their opposition to the Trump administration's plans to open up our coasts to offshore drilling and all of those dangers. So I hope that you'll stick with us. It's another fantastic segment, and we're almost done. This is The Dirt. Thank you. Welcome back to The Dirt. This is our final segment today, and we're going to leave you with uh, some talk about Offshore drilling, or as I like to call it, beachfront drilling, uh, because that is a more accurate description of what's happening. This is right off of our beaches. Uh, the uh, Trump administration has issued a five-year plan where they want to open up uh, most of America's shores to offshore oil exploration. And that plan includes North Carolina. Uh, they are holding informational sessions in each of the affected states, and the one that they held here in North Carolina was in Raleigh, uh, hundreds of miles from the coast. So yesterday, when the hearing was taking place, the session, uh, hundreds of people came up from the coast uh, on buses and in cars and in waves to voice their opposition to what the administration is planning. There were speakers uh, uh, DEQ, Department of Environmental Quality Secretary Michael Regan spoke. Several elected officials, officials including Representative Deb Butler, spoke. Some businessmen spoke, uh, faith leaders. It was a um, an energizing day. Here are some of the folks that we spoke to, some of the voices and sounds uh, from the event in case you missed it. Enjoy.
my family has a business on the Outer Banks. We, it's a small family business, and we've been there since 1975. Um, I'm obviously from there and grew up on the beaches, and I can't imagine what this would do. Well, we came out to Raleigh all the way from the Outer Banks because we really needed our voices to be heard about the, the seriousness of protecting our coast. At, this is our tourism industry, our economy that is just you know thriving on the Outer Banks over a billion dollars in tourism economy, as well as all the jobs that we have in place, all the livelihoods are seriously going to be affected by any type of offshore drilling. So we're I just needed to come here. I will, I will come back. I will go to Washington, D.C. to get that message out, how important it is to protect our coast. Well, on the Outer Banks, basically, yeah, the offshore drilling threatens our entire economy and way of life. It's kind of like the, the single standalone threat that we've got going on right now. So if, uh, if they want to try and you know put us out of work, we got to come and stand up for ourselves. Well, it's important for all of us to be here to let our voices be heard and to let the BOEM people and the federal government know that there are people all over the state of North Carolina who know that this is a bad idea. Well, you know, Wilmington is a coastal community and my husband's grandfather built a cottage on Carolina Beach in 1933. So I have been coming to the area for a very, very long time before we moved here and it's the place that even though they didn't grow up here, that my kids call home. And we spend a lot of time on those beaches. I planned on spending time one day with my grandchildren on those beaches. And when I was growing up, my favorite aunt lived in the southern part of Texas, and we'd go down and visit. And I remember going and playing on those beaches and then coming back to her house and sitting on the edge of the sink for what seemed like hours while my aunt and my mother scrubbed the bottom of my feet to get the oil off of them. And I don't want that for our beaches here. It's, it's just not worth it. We have a ridiculously small amount of oil off of our coast, and we have a huge economic boon from tourism, from fishing, and from recreation. The number I keep hearing uh, batted around is $3 billion in GDP in those industries. And to gamble that for what's about a month's worth of oil off of our coast, makes no sense. Well, I remember in California, in um, Ventura County, they had an oil spill. And <clears throat> when you walked the beach even seven years afterwards, if you scraped the sand, you could still find oil, and you eventually got back to your car. If you were barefoot or even with shoes, there'd be tar on the soles of your feet. Not only did it kill the animals, um, the various birds that were at light, um, the, the creatures that were in the water, it, it was so toxic. And even, even after many years, it was still that way. It was still like a dead zone. So, Well, we're part of the Topsail Island Turtle Patrol, so we uh, look for turtle nest every summer. And I think that this would definitely harm the turtles coming and laying their eggs and hatching. So it, it would hurt the environment also. Plus, it's just a very pristine beach area with all kinds of seafood and oysters and clams and shrimp and all of those things uh, that we use for eating and, and all of that. So, yes, definitely it would, it would create the possibility of a toxic environment. Well, I mean, just I don't want to see any dead animals. I don't want to see 
bad enough after a hurricane to see dead animals, but if it blows up or even if it leaks, it's going to kill animals, and they're going to they're going to our, we won't be able to get anybody to come to our coast for a vacation, and we'll go somewhere else. Well, of course, we have uh, a large commercial and recreational fishing industry. We have a tourist industry that, with any mishaps in oil, would would go away. Uh, the infrastructure that they would want to build to support the oil industry would also chase people away. Nobody wants to sit on the beach and watch that. Uh, it's important for me, for my business, for the Outer Banks residents, really for the whole coast of North Carolina, because um, this type of activity it just can't work off our coast. We're in Hurricane Central, and we set up drilling platforms. It just sets them up for as like a bowling ball ring. Come through, and then we we the disaster comes right upon us and we are solely dependent on tourism dollars and if we don't get those thousands of people will be out of jobs well i'm a, you know i'm a mother i've raised my family on the outer banks i've been there over 30 years and of course a visitor before then i'm a business owner um i own a vacation rental company i employ uh, over 50 year-round folks and swell to over 350 seasonally so it's really affecting a, a lot of people that I work with and uh, we work together um, we know I know from being a property manager of vacation rentals that you know the homeowners their their uh, their investments in the, the properties as well as the vacationers who enjoy their time there you know it's just it's it's just it's all at risk if if anything were to happen. We can certainly agree to have um, energy independence, but we don't need to be going into the coast for that. I would I would say for me, it's not more of a personal thing. It's more for uh, for the environment of the Outer Banks, and um, and I employ 34 people. And if we can't sell food and can't sell ice cream, we they can't have a job. And I'm raising three kids down there, and I want to stay there. And if there's oil on the beach, we we're in we're in trouble. I would like to tell them no drilling. Uh, nobody wants it. The entire East Coast is united on this, and uh, we do not want. Uh, we have other ways to find energy resources already very abundantly available on the on the land. We do not need to go into our coast. We will fight this uh, forever. Those are my beaches. That's where I spend my weekends. That's where I go when people come to visit. And it's my economy. Our economy depends on tourism. It depends on the hospitality industry. It depends on the fishing industry, on the recreation industry. If we spoil those beaches, the basis of the economy in Wilmington is gone. And we're expecting between 100 and 200,000 new people over the next decade. If we have oil on our beaches, that growth isn't gonna happen. Nobody wants to live in that environment. So this is our livelihood. This is our home. And it just takes one small spill to ruin it for everybody. I think immediately the moment that it even becomes, it's an idea right now, right? The moment it becomes something that's set, people will stop coming. I, I truly think that. And then you have to take into account what will happen when they actually start drilling. And that's the scary part. Um, obviously for a family business and the way we make a living and we survive and I have little kids I mean it's my mom my dad and I and my brother um, and then after it happens what's you know the impact they'll have on the environment the, the Trump administration I just don't understand why they were so quick to to want to do this again but um, 
I guess I just want to say they need to take into consideration all of these voices, all of these people here, and actually listen. And they're rich enough as it is. Offshore drilling is an equal threat to my way of life as shipping jobs overseas or selling job, giving jobs away to foreign workers. It's the, it's the same thing. It's giving, it's basically leasing our public resources to the ten richest companies on the planet that are all multinational, global corporations for no, uh, for no reward to the people that live there. We've spent decades building up a thriving, more lucrative coastal economy. That, ge- that employs more people and generates more revenue, and he's threatening to give that all away to people who don't need it for no good reason uh, and for no, uh, you know, really no ener- any, any energy independence uh, rewards either. It's basically a big giveaway. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. One thing about this group that I wanted to say at the end, but I'm going to say at the beginning, keep the fight and keep the faith. To love one's heart is to care about one's environment, to strategize and anticipate the future, to draw on the community of resistance and solidarity. And if we stem from the creation of a holy God, then we ourselves are to be holy. Our acts are to be holy. And if a holy God is the creator of the land in which we reside, then it too is holy. It's sacred. The faith community, we stand in resistance. Yeah, 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 yeah. You set up these drilling platforms, setting up bowling pins in the hurricanes of the bowling ball. And then what happens, you know, Deepwater Horizon had an underwater break. What happens when a whole platform gets obliterated by a hurricane? What happens then? They have a, a tap in the ground and they, they couldn't figure out how to stop Deepwater Horizon. You know, Governor Cooper has been clear since we first heard the details of President Trump's plan to drill in our waters. His message is not hard to understand. His message is not off our coast, not now, not tomorrow. Our coastal tourism industry contributes more than 30,000 jobs and a $3 billion economy. We're at risk of losing these jobs and hurting our state's economy if the Trump administration is successful in fast-tracking this process without everybody's input. What I really want to do is ask you guys a question. Why do you think Donald Trump's Department of Interior held the only public meetings in the entire state of North Carolina hundreds of miles away from the affected coast? He, He didn't think you guys were going to show up. He didn't think that hundreds of you would take off work today. And I want to say thank you for being here. It it matters. Tourism supports other industries. It doesn't threaten them. When we look at even the most ambitious studies for oil and gas and what they project, the first thing we see is that the projections are all over the place. They simply do not know what is out there. And the only way to find out is to harm our mammals, our fish, and our way of life. More than $167 million was raised on the coast in the way of state taxes, state tax revenue, that's coming back to Raleigh and is being used across our state. This isn't a coastal issue. It's a state issue. It's a world issue. Yes. Thank you very much.
we can never stop letting them know that the people of the Outer Banks and our coastal neighbors are in opposition to offshore drilling. We have nothing to gain and everything to lose. Together, we're going to win this struggle. Yes! Right? Right? And we're going to fight those who will jeopardize our coast and our children's future. And interestingly enough for me, it's those who claim to hold on to these concepts of small government now using the federal government to tell state and local officials and citizens how to feel and what's best for them. As a shell fisherman, we rely on water quality to ensure the best possible product for you, our consumer. I feel we have the finest water quality on the East Coast. I, I work off a of core sound that's been designated as outstanding resource waters by the state of North Carolina. When we contemplate oil and gas exploration and production off our coast as close as three miles from the beach, as we ponder the effects of multiple overlapping seismic surveys, we must also fully understand the resource that we have now. A recent study by the, the Division of Maine Fisheries in the state of North Carolina put the total economic impact of commercial fishing at over $700 million. The recreational fishing sector probably doubles or triples that. We have tens of thousands of clams grown throughout the year. We have thousands of peeler crabs in the spring. These animals can't run from the spill. They must take in the oil water mix. I feel responsible for them and I would be devastated. I'm sorry. I spent hours yesterday on the Surf City Beach. It was one of those perfect days. It was low tide. There were tidal pools with the sun glinting off of them. There were pelicans flying in synchronicity like they do. Sandpipers and seagulls begging me for my lunch. <laughs> the fishing pier in the distance. I looked for shark's teeth. I watched and listened to the waves as they rolled in and the sun warmed my face. I watched young lovers stroll hand in hand and I saw young parents with jubilant toddlers and grandparents all in tow. We all know that the ocean is powerful. It's healing. It calms us and it brings us peace. It has been said that the ocean stirs the heart inspires the imagination, and brings eternal joy to the soul. And it belongs to all of you. Yeah!